Welcome to Living a Sex Positive Life, where we can guarantee the topic will be about sex. We'll talk about the good and the bad, the health and healing benefits, the adventures, the relationships, as well as the crimes and the tragedies. Our mission is to educate, entertain, and just talk about that touchy subject that affects us all, sex. Now here's your host, Angelique Luna. Good evening, everyone. It's Angelique Luna, and I'm here with my co-host and hubby, John C. Luna. Evening, everyone. Yay! So tonight we have a fun event. It's a a doubleheader tonight, so after this podcast, we do have another one, so stay tuned. Marathoning it tonight. I know. It's like, because it's National Coming Out Day, yay! And it's my birthday eve, so yes, so I want to go out with a bang as much as I can. (laughs) So we have... (laughs) Exactly! Always the puns. So tonight we're talking with the presenters of the Sex Ed Mixtape. I saw these ladies over at ASAC and fell in love with them. I loved the presentation, loved everything. So let me introduce you to Cindy Lee and Lindsay Kane. So Cindy Lee is a sexologist, educator, writer, facilitating challenging conversations for over a decade. She seems so young for being over a decade, but that's not my personal opinion. (laughs) Their experience includes teaching courses at various colleges in the Northeast, as well as trainings and workshops for adults and young people on various topics throughout the country. A native New Yorker now living in Connecticut, Cindy Lee is an independent consultant, doctoral candidate at Weiner University Center for Sexuality Studies, as well as an executive board member for the award-winning Women of Color Sexual Health Network. And then we have Lindsay Kane, who is a sexuality educator and current doctoral candidate at Widener University. Her research focuses on the relationship between white sexuality educators and students of color. She has taught sexuality education in over 15 school districts in three states and guest lectured at four universities. Lindsay has experienced teaching in alternative settings, such as mentorship programs, juvenile detention, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, and has worked with individuals and intellectual intellectual and development disabilities and their caretakers, parents, and support staff. She is the founder of Epic Sex Ed, examining power and privilege in sex ed classrooms. Welcome, girls, to the show. Thank you for being on here. Thank you for having us. So please, how did you guys meet to come up with the Mix Ed sex tape? Well, we had the good misfortune of accidentally meeting in graduate school and uh, kind of just realized the things that we have in common, right? I mean, Cindy, you take it. Yes. So we met and we connected in one of the long capstone classes that we take at Widener, um, specifically, interestingly enough, sensitive issues in human sexuality. And um, we just vibe, right? You just... We go by energy. Yeah, you know anything. You connect you know with people. Anything. Right, like it's a vibe. You can't, you can't deny it. We both have a lot of interest in similar things. In particular, we service similar communities. Um, all the other fluffy stuff that I've done in my bio, I've also worked with um, young people, and then particularly, specifically, communities of color. Um, and we wanted to present an ASEC, so we thought let's tie our sexuality piece with our love for music, hip-hop literacy in particular, and, you know, let's show out at ASEC. And we did the best we could, and I think... It was amazing. Yeah. Yep, it was, it, it was because I just kept looking at the lyrics and I'm like, I've never thought of it that way. And just the way how you presented it and broke it down and played trivia. Okay, who's saying what? What does it really mean? What are they talking about? Uh, I was just like, wow. It, I was very impressed, I'll tell you that. Well, for someone who's heard about it but hasn't actually seen it, how, how would you explain your sex ed tape? How would you explain your presentation to our listeners? Yeah. Well, basically, we just had to bring it to y'all. We had to make sure that we brought a little bit of our knowledge, a little bit of our background, but then also asked everybody to rise to the occasion, right? We know that um, not everyone is a trained sex educator, but we also know that people don't necessarily have hip-hop in their background. But we also, having spent years and years and years with young people, 
know how young people kind of consume culture, and in particular hip-hop culture, and we know that we need to ask people to rise to the occasion to understand what's really going on in the classroom. Because uh, oftentimes uh, someone beatboxing on a desk or someone answering a, a teacher with a rhyme, you know, can be coded as a classroom management issue, can be coded as a child who is, you know, trying to be disrespectful. And we're like, no, we're not here for that. So we're trying to bridge the gap between uh, where kids are at and, and how they've trusted us as facilitators and kind of bring that to uh, other educators and say, hey, we have some work to do in this area. Yeah, I sparkle for that, and I also want to add, um, I think I'm confident to say that we both come from the same school of thought where the most effective education, and for our, you know, our, our experiences, sexuality education in particular, for the purpose of this conversation, is to center uh, the communities that we're, we're focused on, right? In particular, uh, young people young people of color or multiple mar you know marginalized identities and yeah it's just the perception of how young people are so instead of just centering their brilliance and knowing that they come to the classroom with their own knowledge and skill set and just you know meeting them where they are in the sense rather than you know tying more respectability politics to their I'm sure they're going to have a lot of experience with that um, outside the classroom as it is or in other classrooms that aren't facilitated by us. Oh, yeah, definitely. You just really need to bring something to them so they can understand and relate because, yeah, it, it is a different environment there. And, and so I noticed, like, one of you guys that were doing, like, juvenile detentions, and how do they react to these conversations knowing, you know, where they're at? Well, you know, unfortunately, when we talk about the work that we're doing together, that doesn't mean that every space that we're, we walk into that we're allowed to facilitate this material. Like, let's be uh, truthful about that. Okay. Uh, above all else, I think, Cindy Lee, uh, you let me know if you agree, but there's a school of thought that just says uh, connection before content. And that's kind of the thread that runs through kind of how we are as facilitators and why we do what mm -hmm. we do. Because it's so much less about... Um, if someone can remember the symptoms of gonorrhea, then it is about, like, how can I get with you and get what gets you to have something that you can benefit from out of this conversation, you know? And it doesn't look like me as a white woman walking in and using slang terms to be cool. It means me walking in and being ready to receive whatever I'm being given, regardless if it's at a traditional classroom or if it's in a juvenile detention facility. Um, young people are young people and if we look at everybody like an individual and give it a minute to actually just sink in um, that's how we connect and that's how that connection is the importance to how someone will take something away from the from the lesson or from the material that you're trying to teach oh that's awesome that's a great perspective and viewpoint on it because I think people just put that narrow horse blinders okay this is the way it's supposed to be and that's it, it it's just sometimes you have to look outside of the box and you guys are doing a great job doing that. Well, also the fact that they made their presentation at ASAC, uh, a place that's, I guess, trying, starting to try to be diverse, but for, for the most part is, you know, PhD in doctors and is primarily... Uh, white. Well, I'm white, so I get to say it, white bread. So, <laughs> oh, just because uh, the Mexican can't say it? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't say you couldn't say it. You married me, so... But that's fantastic that they accept it uh, and want you to do it out there. Yes, I will say that they are trying um, to prioritize inclusivity and quote-unquote diversity. Um, I do want to shout out the fact that uh, two women of color were the co-chairs for this year's particular conference which mm -hmm. is Marietta Gary-Smith, who is also a foundress of the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, and Jaylene Galarza, who uh, also is a, a Widener alum. So I just want to shout them out because them, along with the people who did the reviews for these workshops, saw, you know, a place for us to, to present this year. And, you know, thankfully it was met, you know, with very positive, open arms, I think, 
even when people had some, I guess from my perception, some like visceral um, reactions to the content, they were still willing to learn, they were open, they were like, I don't know any of this, but this is what we're here for, right? Like we're here, and it, I think both of us, we like to use a lot of affect and a lot of activities so that even though we're teaching y'all, like the participants, you can take these and adapt them to what's comfortable for you and what's most importantly comfortable for the, the folks that you service. Yeah, absolutely. And and the reason that we have, you know, one reason that we have such a commonality is that we've kind of bonded over this experience of there are, you know, frontline practitioner educators and there are um, people doing some PhD work and we're both. Um, and we've kind of identified it seems as though sometimes there's quite a gap between the two and mm-hmm. there doesn't have to be. Um, and, you know, I know that for myself, uh, once this PhD is completed, I don't want to be any different than I am now. And I don't want to be any different of a facilitator. I still have to do that aspect work that Cindy Lee mentioned. I still have to make sure that that, that, that connection is, and that rapport is still as valued and still as prioritized. Yeah, it's definitely needed for sure. That, that's a given because I, I don't. You're you're right. It's either or. It, you're either a facilitator or you're a PhD. It, there's not that many people that I am aware of that could blend the two very well. That's why we brought our show yeah. to the to the stage. <laughs> yeah, we want to be some of the representatives because we know a lot of our colleagues that do similar work and and understand that it's not always an either or sometimes it's a both and and they can marry really well it doesn't always have to be just one way or one school of thought you know when we look at curriculum right when we look at education and how lesson planning works we always look at or at least how we were trained and our beliefs in terms of our teaching is that we have to accommodate multiple learning styles right and that includes you know, multiple settings, multiple people that we work with, and navigating around that. So being adaptable to the people that we're servicing and not, you know, just making people adaptable to us because of a degree or a power dynamic. Yeah, I think that's oftentimes that people just look at, you know, what, what's your pretty paper and what's your qualifications. And I'm like, sometimes, you know, y- you have the school of hard knocks and that's how you learn. And trying to meet people and to a certain degree almost be like a chameleon. you got to adapt to the environment that you're presented in. So let, let me ask a question. Was the love of hip hop obviously came before you guys uh, met? What was teaching sex ed with hip hop your first performance? Was it was it our first performance? Yes, I'm curious. Yeah, um, collect, collectively, yes, collectively, yes. Uh, but you know, I think we've been we've been playing in our own arenas and then kind of just looking at the common threads, and that's how the two of us came together and that's how you know when we would have planning conversations it'd be like all right what if we drop this lyric and like we would just kind of have a conversation that was very rhythmic and melodic and we're like that's what we're gonna do we're gonna put we're gonna do it like a show we're gonna run it like a show and um you know thankfully it sounds like that vibe came through i think that's awesome uh I think we meshed well, and I want to say that this necessarily, if you want to get technical, our first uh, admit like co-facilitation experience, I don't know if you remember, Lizzie, was in class. We ended up being in the same group, and we ended up presenting for like, you know, our graduate coursework, which I thought was interesting, because years later, with all the experience that we've done in between, we were able to pick back up, have brainstorming sessions that literally felt like a freestyle and you know put this workshop together collectively well in in my day job i'm a teacher and um i I teach software development and i know how difficult it is to teach really dry material and you're teaching a subject when you can like i said sex ed that is obviously a a touchy subject that brings about a lot of giggles especially among the young so finding this avenue of tying it to music 
and pulling him in like that, I think it's just genius. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. You know, we're hoping to, you know, we're trying to get these PhDs done. Uh, we got our part-time hustles, our full-time hustles, and we're going to hopefully develop this. You know, what, what people saw at AFEC was a commercial. What people saw at AFEC was us, uh, like Cindy said, kind of getting back out there and actually co-facilitating outside of our graduate classroom and, and trying to see what we're capable of. We knew it, but we had to see it and we had to show it. And, um, you know, thankfully we're on this path now of hopefully continuing to develop the sex ed mixtape uh, in a way, you know, maybe it's a curriculum, maybe it's a further training, uh, but that's all in development and we're just kind of stoked to continue that. Yeah, it would be thoroughly um, interested in if you guys do like a teacher training program of that presentation, because I know here in Florida, that would be phenomenal here, because with the whole diverse um, transient that we have, because, you know, we live in Central Florida, so we always have tourists coming in, family coming in, and I think that would be perfect for here. I just think, imagine a world where we went from abstinence-only teaching in schools to hip-hop. I mean, that would be a complete 180, but it's gonna be, it would be a lot better than what it is now. <laughs> it starts a conversation. Yeah, well, we have to, yeah. you know, we can't stand on our own feet. We got to, you know, put up that there's a whole school of hip-hop literacy education. Um, so we're yeah. just kind of taking what we love and taking those references and, and, and with just all the love in the world saying, y'all have done this work. We do this work over here. There's a, there's a very very clear marriage to us with uh, with um, hip hop pedagogy and sexuality education, and we're kind of just exploring and sussing that out and trying to see what it can come up to be, um, and see what that happens from there. Well, let me ask you as I'm yeah, reading through. Sexuality is so. Please continue. No, go ahead. No, I just wanted to. Uh sparkle to what Lindsay was saying and say, you know, sexuality is interdisciplinary. And for young people in particular, for whatever reason, we always focus on this like quote unquote health disparity or, mm. you know, on the on the other end, complete abstinence, which all the receipts show, right? Doctoral, academic, pedagogy, all of that shows that it's not effective, but it's still happening because you know whatever the powers that be. But sexuality is so much more than just, you know, talking about putting pieces together or showing pictures of STIs and saying don't have sex, right? So we're just trying to prove that you can talk about sexuality in a number of things. And for our experiences, what better way is to bring what the young people, for example, for this workshop in particular, um, what they're interested in and where they're at. And right now it's, you know, for a lot of them, it's their love of music and hip hop in particular. We also have to take a minute to mention that any type of sexuality education in America right now, um, much of it that, that, that's funded through any sort of funding stream that's not a personal um, charitable organization, uh, many of those grants have stipulations to be in particular areas. And when you say, when you say particular areas like target school districts, that's a, that's a code for black, brown, and poor. So if we are already uh, mandated to be in these particular school districts and these particular communities, most of the sexuality educators look like me, and most sexuality educators are, are, are using um, evidence-based curricula that are, um, you know, not entirely akin to what it needs to be culturally for people to have the best experience of it. So uh, some of this work also is really grounded and rooted in, like, what is the supremacist underlying crap that we need to get out of the way um if, if i know that my job um or or for anybody's job for example is, is funded in a particular way where it has to go to a particular district and i'm the only white face in the room and i'm saying you know sexual absence is the only way to be and if you don't use a condom you might die and all the nuances of what it looks like as a white woman telling a classroom full of black and brown children that this is the way to be uh, there's so much contextual nuance in that and so much racism and white supremacy that's rooted not only in the ways in which we teach, but in how our curriculum is developed. And so that's definitely part of the lifeblood of the sex ed mixtape as well. You know, we're having fun. We're, we are using lyrics. We're allowing people to, you know, have 
um, you know, explicit content in media, when we talk about words, we're not shying away from those words that are usually, you know, quote-unquote inappropriate in the classroom. But that's the, that's the stuff that runs through it. We really have to get to the bottom of um, the crap and the shit and the way that stuff was founded. We have to undo it. And thankfully, we've been able to come up with a creative way to kind of chip away at some of that. Yeah, you guys have a lot of work ahead of you there. Well, hopefully it catches on and uh, you'll be teaching teachers soon. But yeah, even in my experience, you hit the, the, the head of the nail. Um, most of the sex ed material and even uh, sex ed and alternative relationships, uh, uh, gay, lesbian, um, LGBT, they're 80% written by white women. And there's a few written by men. And as far as everyone else, it is such a small percentage that, you know, the resources are, are so limited that'll in any way relate um, to certain communities. So it, it's, ex- you know, extremely uh, necessary and needed, way overdue. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's not the job of people of color to come in and right our wrongs. You know, um, of course, there always needs to be more opportunity for educators of color to come to do their work. You know, everybody's lane needs to be open in order to reach as many people in the most beneficial, mindful way that we possibly can. Uh, everyone's experience needs to be validated uh, through the facilitator lens and through a student lens. Uh, me, particularly, knowing knowing how white I am and knowing what I offer. You know, um, it's just been important to me to make sure that I'm taking up space, but I'm also making space. And that space that I'm trying to make is a mindful one where people are like, oh, shit, I had no idea that this tenant of sexuality education was founded on, you know, something. You know, people don't know the history of certain institutions and eugenics and the, and, and the reasons why we have policies that we have. And, um, you know, it's a huge, broad discussion. So uh, you were not wrong when you said we have some work ahead of us, but there are just a lot of things to consider. Yeah, especially with, um, like, today is National Coming Out Day. Um, I think a lot of people just don't realize the history and the importance of today is. Well, coming out is definitely uh, occasionally a a traumatic, as well as, um, what am I looking for? heightening experience hopefully a beneficial experience for many right but it's it started about 30 years ago when they did the first uh aids march and they just kind of designated today as a national coming out because every year they did a march and they started doing the aids quilt and trying to assure everyone that they're not different that everyone's well loved Yes, and also I appreciate um, all the folks that also have these difficult conversations on this day to have a teachable moment and discuss that not everyone has the privilege to come out, right? It's not safe to come out, or even worse, there are some people that are outed um, by others on coming out day, assuming that you're for you to be a good person queer person right a good lgbtq person it's like you have to come out you have to be proud of who you are and i get that part um i come out every year but we i also hold space for folks who don't come out and who will never be able to come out for whatever reason that is um and know that they are valued and they are loved even if they cannot come out on this day or any day right i completely agree the conversation is shifted yeah, it's really it's affirming to see that more people, and especially young people, are taking that more holistic approach because I think, you know, years back it was just, you know, coming out meant everybody had to come out and we had to celebrate everything and that everybody's experience would be safe and affirmed. And, and you know, through experience we know that that's just not true. Um, so I'm, I'm just grateful to have Cindy Lee in my life, period, end of story. Uh, but she sets an, an excellent example for um, how to really – take care of everyone in whatever space they occupy well it is nice that it's just become socially accepted to where you can even if you're not coming out even if you are straight you can go out and support 
because I've, I've, I've seen like we have gay days down here and across the country. And um, I know Pride it's June 2nd, we wear a, a red shirt. Well, that's over at Magic Kingdom. That's been a tradition for over 30-some-odd years there. <laughs> but so many people who, you know, aren't a part of that community but support that community were out there with them. And it's great that they can do that. And, you know, maybe they're thinking about coming out. Maybe they're not. That That is, again, that's a personal decision for them. But I'm just, I'm so glad it's so much socially acceptable um, to support, you know, other communities like that. I guess that came out right. I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. The, um, no, the... I think the piece that we could add is the piece that education, you know, um, whereas Cindy and I are focusing where we're focusing, there's also absolutely work to be done to have more LGBT-inclusive um, sexuality education practices. Um, and there needs to be some history and some research and some more facilitator competency, for sure, um, and humility around uh, topics like this and students you know, not assuming everyone in your room is heterosexual, not assuming everyone in your classroom is cisgender. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done in that avenue as well. Yes, definitely in the Bible Belt. I feel the pain. <laughs> yes, but it's also um, for all of us. Because I know sometimes we have, um, we don't properly ask for pronouns. I'm and, getting better. But we are getting better at that. But it, But it is complicated and it is changing quickly. Yes, and I think it's doable, right? Especially if you make a habit of, yes, um, to keep trying, right? And to keep being intentional. Um, I've worked with companies or taught for different agencies where they're like, oh, we don't need to ask for pronouns because there are no trans people here. And I'm like, that's not the purpose, right? We're trying to create a habit of inclusivity so if and when someone is trans or gender non-conforming or wants to change their pronouns day to day because in my experience a lot of my young people i have to check in because they change their pronouns you know regularly because they're feeling it out they're seeing you know and because there's a lot of fluidity in gender and sexuality right so like you know speaking out and making that that intentional habit of making those things. I didn't come out of my mother asking people for pronouns, right? Nor do I expect my students to automatically hear me talk about all types of folks and want to frolic at a pride parade, right? Like, that is not my goal. My goal is for, like, safety and security and respect for everybody, especially when we talk about, you know, a lot of the fears that a lot of us have in terms of the administration and our rights and our protections that we have as LGBTQ plus people, as people of color, as people with various abilities, and all the different um, intersections of that, right? Because we talk about, you know, a lot of agencies will do LGBTQ plus work and then leave out people of color or leave out abilities. And I know it's difficult mm -hmm. work to try to be inclusive of everyone, but it's putting in the work, right? It's the intention and it's way, I'm sure it's way more difficult to be in a setting where you're mandated to sit and take this sex ed, for example, and feel invisible because they're not talking to you. And especially when we're talking about something like sex ed in schools and young people, I have tons of kids because I, I, I would also work with some GSAs. I have tons of kids that would be like, you're making me go to sex ed. But all they keep talking about is penis and vagina intercourse. And all they keep talking about is pregnancy. And those things don't wanna, those things at this moment don't apply to me. So I feel like, where do I get my sex ed? Right? And that's tender, right? That breaks my heart that, you know, these young people want this information. And they have to get this one slice cookie cutter way of doing it and then hope for the best. Right? Thanks to, mm -hmm. Thankfully, the Internet has information. But sometimes it's not the most accurate, and there's so many avenues that they can, you know, get steered in the wrong direction in terms of accurate information that's on the web. Uh, everything that Cindy just said, plus I think that that also kind of solidifies our role as facilitators. You know, we were at another conference overhearing some, um, some workshops talk about you know, now under this administration and the different stresses that we're having and the different rights that are just being obliterated at one after another, it might be really easy to want to just stay the course, to want to just put in the same amount of energy and effort every day and just hold steady. 
but it's it's not that time. We really, really kind of have to just broaden and we have to just show out and get stronger because people's lives depend on it. They always have, but people's lives are depending on it more and more all the time. So for us as sexuality educators and the role of facilitator, we have to be ready. We have to be ready. We are already dealing with such vulnerable issues in the classroom that we cannot shy away from when someone brings up a vulnerability that maybe we haven't experienced personally or a vulnerability that maybe we don't have the same kind of background in. Um, As a sexuality educator, young people and even older people bring you sensitive information because they're like, oh, my God, I can finally say it to somebody. So once they do that, the most important thing to me and I think to us is to be a person who's worthy of that information and to be a person who can demonstrate that there's someone in the world that can handle your vulnerability and that can be there with you and that can also maybe hopefully direct you or or help you, shepherd you into a place that can get you someplace that you need and something that you need to be and have. Um, You know, it's it's the fight, it's the fire in my belly that says that we need to kind of continue to get stronger because that's the only way that that we're going to survive in many ways. And uh, so that's, that's my main role as a facilitator, as I see it, is to be that person. If we have that capacity, if I have that capacity, and I truly believe that Cindy and I, you know, share this, um, if we can take it on, we're going to take it on. And we just need to do it. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we thank you for that. Especially the last year, it's been much more difficult uh, and the current administration, you got to take the, the little victories. And I'm g- going slightly off topic, but I just got news an hour ago, and I just want to throw it out there. Again, slight victory for all of us. Um, the Boy Scouts today announced that they're going to start letting girls in. And it's not a huge change, but hope, you know, from a, from an organization that has previously been... been uh, uh, how would you put it, criticized because they haven't been LGBTQ friendly. It's a small bit of change. And you know what? It, it's probably not something I should go off my heels off of. But given the current administration, we can still make a little bit of a difference and head in the right direction. Absolutely. Um, when I think about... Uh, the news about girls being allowed in Boy Scouts, I remember seeing so much pushback on Facebook from folks, right? Like folks, especially for me, like folks that you see as friends or colleagues, and then you'll see the different um, opinions and points of view that people have, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Like, it's, But it's, I can because I was raised that way, right? I can speak for myself, and I'm sure a lot of folks, we were raised to put a lot of weight on gender, right? We're raised to automatically assume sex is the same thing as gender, and and everything is so gendered. Like, I do the activities in class all the time that I'm like, all right, nurse, doctor, teacher, talk to me about them, and they'll automatically start gendering them with pronouns, right? The doctor is obviously um, he and him, right? And the teacher and the nurse are obviously she and her, and we have to break that down. And that's not just with my young people. That's with my college students. That's why with my adults. Um, and still me. Like, I have been conditioned to live in this very gendered space, um, especially how United States deals with gender. And a lot of people have some really, really hard, um, I, I would say, growth edges that need to get worked on as far as gender is concerned. Um, a lot of emotions that people have about something to me that has nothing to do with them right someone's own gender identity and what they you know whatever they pickle that i don't understand how that has anything to do with you but you know that's deep a lot like i'll have conversations like that and it'll be a problem um and you know you pick and choose who you want to engage with because there's a cognitive dissonance right if people are not ready to listen to the stuff whether it be about gender or sexuality, or the race and white supremacy stuff that we discuss, you know, there's but so much emotional labor that we can give if people are just not ready to hear it, right? And that's, that's completely understandable. I think it becomes an issue when it's the people in power that are the ones that have a hard time hearing it. And luckily, I would say somewhere in the Boy Scouts, some people are 
you know, being understanding of um, being open to different genders attending these events that are supposed to be, like, enriching for young people, right? Like, that's supposed to be a fun learning experience for a young person and everyone's battling whether or not somebody can be a part of it. So. It's still hard to believe in 2017 that that's still around. But but I know, I believe, Cindy, you said you were from New York, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I grew up in New York. And as you know, the buildings okay. are somewhat old. I went to a school, and I always wondered why one entrance said boys and the other one said girls. And it was like, oh, well, that's because mm-hmm. we kept them separate. And I'm like, oh. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, even back then it was like, well, you keep saying you're training us for the real world. That doesn't seem really real worldish unless you're being a Spartan. Um, <laughs> right, right. Like we're going divergent here, or like I don't know, <laughs> we're separating everybody. It doesn't really doesn't really make sense. It still happens now, though. Like I know when I come into certain school districts, I'm told to gender my classes, and I have to be the one to give pushback. And sometimes I could push back so much because I'd rather give the information and have it come from me because I know how to you know maneuver that but it pains me because they assume that grade school or middle school or high school does not have uh gender creative young people so what happens when they don't want to be in either group and some of them are a little open-minded and they'll say something like oh we'll let people choose what group they want to be in but that still can be considered hella violent to someone who doesn't want to choose and has to be forced to choose or has to look like you know, it has to be ostracized. And at that developmental age, depending on what that is, that could be a critical turning point in their livelihood, right? Yeah, so much damage done by changing and being in separate uh, genders. Because I could never understand why they need to separate the kids. It's like I was ready to go into my daughter's classroom and say, why can't you just teach them the same thing at the same time? So that way they learn to respect each other. That was during sex ed, right? Where they yeah, separated how, them. Yeah, sex ed. And I, I lost my shit. Yeah. But I, I live in a town that, uh, um, yeah, never mind. Uh, <laughs> we won't discuss that. <laughs> no, you know, I got to echo what Cindy said, but also say that it's not town specific. It's not town specific. specific. So all the things that we're talking about, it all goes back to whomever the gatekeeper is. And this the adult in charge, whether it's the educator, the administrator, has some sort of personal value around gender. Um that's it. That's the prevailing law of how that class is going to be taught. Um, so, uh, you know, some of the stuff that Cindy was talking about, about when that young person has to be choose or assigned what group to talk to, that, the literacy of that, of that situation, that understanding that she was describing of that situation, is so far above and beyond a lot of educator awareness that uh, people are operating in in their day-to-day. No, no, very few people that I've interacted with are going, okay, well, what if I have, a, a, you know, even the, gen- the term gender creative? Um, there's a lot of work to be done. And uh, bottom line is we need to make sure that while we're doing the hard work as adults as to how to get better, that we do not perpetrate any further harm on our young people. And that's easier said than done. But lives and livelihoods depend on our awareness. And that's where we need to be that's where we need to be focusing like it's not like oh i had a hard time with pronouns today okay great however let's keep it moving like there's more to this conversation than the than the introductory level and we need to make sure that we're honoring that yes it's just sometimes people forget there's more to sex ed than the actual actions like the relationships the respect the communication the consent i mean there's so much more because i know i teach a workshop to parents it's like how to talk to your kids about sex and my opening line is it's like where did you guys learn your healthy relationships and they all give me like that crooked eyed stare it's like i thought we're here to talk about sex and i'm like yeah we are healthy relationships is the first thing about sex it's not so much the action. It's like, got to learn to communicate, give them confidence, have them the option to say no and mean it, and have the respect that they're going to listen to it, both boys and girls. Because I've seen some girls take advantage of some guys that I'm like, oh, my God, I I really wish I could videotape this and show, like, see, boys get bullied by girls, too, about having sex. It's not just boys. So... Yeah, I think there's pressure from both ends, regardless 
even if we take aside, you know, the LGBTQ plus stuff, which is critical, even if we're talking about a classroom that has just cisgender folks who are like, yes, I'm assigned this sex and my gender aligns with that, um, why, why do we still think it's okay to just teach about menstrual cycles to people who are assigned female and, and that's it? Like, I'll tell, I will have people look at me cross-eyed when I tell them, okay, you want to split genders? Cool, I'll do that, but I'm also teaching menstrual menstruation because usually it's like puberty kind of classes that people are okay with right at, mm-hmm. at baseline it'll be like levels healthy relationship for like the super traditional folks in my experience and then like okay puberty because we don't want to have those conversations y'all do it but i'll be like all right but i'm doing the same conversation for both if you want me to have them separate let's do that but i'm going to teach periods to, to young boys young folks who are assigned male and they're like, no, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, in my experience, I know a lot of grown-ass masculine folks who have no idea about the menstrual cycle, right, and have no idea how, that, how the mechanics work. And I'm like, how does, how does that happen when we should be aware of all bodies? We don't know when we're going to be in a situation where um, we have to help somebody out or if we're a teacher and somebody has their period, are, are we going to have, un- are we going to be super uncomfortable with that? Or are we going to be able to support that young person, right? Because even the teachers in the schools, I always ask them, where did they get their sexuality education from? Because a lot of us, you know, it's similar to mine, right? I got period conversations like in sixth grade, and then maybe I got a whole bunch of STDs thrown at me, not literally, but maybe, I didn't know. <laughs> in high school and and that's it though so then now i'm having conversations with grown-ass men that are my homies right those who are assigned male at birth and they have daughters and they have no idea how to have these conversations and they automatically assign that to the maternal figure and i'm like but what happens when folks don't have that option what happens when there's no two-parent home like we need to know this information it's not just a gendered thing right i know about wet dreams and random ass <laughs> like that happens but we should be I, sh- I don't know we should stay ready so we don't have to get ready right and have all this knowledge mm-hmm. so that we can all have mm-hmm. a, a little bit of something and we can teach back right Oh, absolutely. It's like when you have that conversation about teachers and periods, the first thing that popped into my head was the original 1970s Carrie version where Carrie had her period and she was like freaking out and no one had the heart to explain to her what was going on because her mom was very religious. Right, in the beginning of the movie, right? Yep. Well, and you cut to now, and and we have that, you know, if anybody hasn't watched it yet, we've got this fantastic cartoon on Netflix called Big Mouth. So we go from that, you know, that religious terror all the way to now we're watching animated seventh graders just talk real talk about the shit that they're going through and as they're going through it, whether it's periods or wet dreams or relationships and stuff like that, and it's hilarious, right? And, of course, as we stand right now in, in sexuality education in our school system, there ain't no way that we'd be able to show that in our classrooms. However, I would absolutely recommend it to anybody who has an interest in these topics. But then also just that is that's how kids talk. It is that real. Seventh graders are saying dick and pussy and and they, all the other words, you know, and that's part mm-hmm. of the reason why we do what we do. And that's part of the reason why we don't shy away from words. And that's part of the reason why... You know, I try real hard to make sure that I don't use the term inappropriate in my classroom unless, you know, someone perpetrates a nasty comment or something directed towards someone else. You know, someone's feelings and the words that they know to use to describe those feelings, those things are not inappropriate. It's inappropriate when we purposely harm someone with them. But we gotta, we got to remove this kind of notion of inappropriate to make sure we can get to some sort of common understanding. Oh, no, yeah, I totally agree, yeah. because even when my daughter was in seventh grade, she's in high school now, but she was in seventh grade, and she actually caught two students in middle school having sex in the bathroom. It's very common. Absolutely. Not uncommon. Absolutely. And even if I don't, I've had personal experiences with my young people, but even if I didn't, 
my college students, I do a lot of journals and reflective pieces because, yay, feelings, I want you to be in your feelings. Um, and I'll have, you know, some students do a sexual autobiography, and a lot of them will be like, oh, my first sexual encounter was I was nine. I didn't know what I was doing. Or I was 10, mm-hmm. and I was following porn, and I stuck it in like a thermometer. I, I didn't do nothing else, right? Like, there's all these stories of this, these uninformed practices. And what would happen if we taught them about communication and negotiation from early, right? Because we're sexual from the womb to the tomb is what it's discussed, right? And even if we never are able to go into a school district, all these young people, and I'm not going to say all, but a lot of these young people will have access to the, either the Internet or to Netflix, and they'll see a show like Big Mouth that touches on it in a kind of sex-positive way. What's going to happen when they bring that up? in class mm. are the teachers mm-hmm. who are not sex educators going to br- be able to bring this up and discuss it or are they going to shut it down and let you know media literacy uh be the sex educator for these young people yeah yep. that's a conversation i mean on top of that we also have to think about um you know even if our intention is to try to go there with a the kid if our, if our intention is to try to be with a young person but we know we're coming up against something that's deemed explicit by uh, administrator or curriculum supervisors. Um, you know, then you walk into the territory of like, okay, I, I know how to answer your question. I want to sit with you with the topic that you're discussing, but I have to hold my, my professionalism in regard now too. You know, it's a very squishy area, pun or no pun intended, but it's a very squishy area for sex educators sometimes depending on where they work, depending on the who pays their paycheck and who feeds them, you know, how much in detail you can actually sit with a kid in their reality. Because, you know, we live in a world that's terrified of lawsuits, that's terrified of misconduct. And, um, you know, we work in such a sensitive arena that uh, it's, it's in the back of many sex educator minds. Like, okay, I know how I could best help this child, but I also need to keep my job. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree because a couple of years ago I was volunteering with um, Planned Parenthood here in Central Florida and they had a grant and they were limited to what they were able to teach and say. So there was, Mm -hmm. we we found a little bit of a loophole because I was a volunteer. I answered some questions, Mm -hmm. but it was, that was a, a very like I said, sketchy loophole because one of the students were like, oh, well, swingers have the highest STDs. And I'm like, no, they don't because they are constantly testing themselves versus monogamous people who don't, that they go from one affair to another and don't even think about wrapping it or, you know, protecting themselves. And that's just it. When the educator's hands are tied, where do they go? And it's the internet. It's exactly what you said, that it's a lot of information and part of it's true and part of it's really good. But how do you sort that out from all the bad? And not everyone does. And how do you, uh, back to why Cindy and I are the way that we are, is above all, it has to be rapport. That kid has to trust that I'm doing the best thing I could possibly do in the moment for the situation. Mm-hmm. And that if I can't give them my 200% as I would want to, that I'm giving them the direction to make sure that they get what they need. And and that is all based on that rapport and that trust with your facilitator. Awesome. Well, yeah, I... absolutely. Um, no, go ahead. No, go ahead, finish up, because we, I was about to wrap up. So they finish your thought, and then we have to close it out. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. I was just sparkling. I'm a sparkler. So I am here for everything that's being said. I think it's a cost-benefit analysis. You know, we need to um, support our sexuality educators, especially the ones who, regardless of whether or not you're able to take these risks, um, because each time it's a risk. Each time that you're like, you know what, I'm Mm -hmm. just going to send to the young people, um, the administration could not like you. If you work for an organization, they won't ask you to come back. If you work as your own, they will ask somebody else that follows their values or their respectability politics. It, it's a risk, right? I personally am willing to take it, but that's the, I don't know what that means, right? Like, there's a possibility that I could be out of the job based on me doing what's best for the young people in my eyes because it doesn't align with the folks who are having me come in, um, regardless of how well the young people look at my, you know, write about me in their evaluation. 
So, you know, hopefully everybody's a dope facilitator and they're able to maneuver around that. Um, but sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we don't, we need a little more stuff in our toolkit, which is why we need to like network and support one another. Absolutely. And I'm hopefully I'm doing a great job by doing that, having you on the show and spreading the love. And unfortunately our time is up. It's been a fantastic conversation. So ladies, please tell our listener where they could find you. Lindsay. Um, I am my name. Oh, yeah. Lindsay, go. Oh, okay. Well, you know, as a result of a lot of the things that we've been discussing, um, they all fall under one thing to me, and that's, and that's being epic. That's talking about power and privilege, examining power and privilege in the classroom. So you can find me at the newly, freshly launched epicsexed.com. I'm Epic Sex Ed at Facebook. You can reach me at Lindsay at epicsexed.com. We can continue any of these conversations that we've been having as to how to really get best at the needs of the people that we serve, whether that, you know, is focused on race or gender or the ways in which white people um, do their best but maybe fall short sometimes. Um, Any of the topics that we've discussed today are things that I want to continue in a mindful, holistic way with folks that want to continue this conversation. Awesome. And Cindy, how could they find you? I am simple. My name is everywhere. So it's Cindy Lee Alves with an S, not a Z, because um, not every Latinx person is with a Z. So CindyLeeAlvez.com. It's at Cindy Lee Alves on most all places. Um, and, yeah, come see me. I do talk, engagement. I do one-on-one consultations. We can make magic happen. Definitely. Well, thank you very much, ladies. And you can find me everywhere on Living a Sex Positive Life on their social media. Please feel free to visit our sponsor page. And any purchases you make from any of our sponsors do contribute back to us. So definitely support our work. Uh, you can also reach me on Facebook, uh, let's see, or Twitter, FetLife as Instagram. John C. Luna. And um, let's see, we have another broadcast coming up real soon, don't we? Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good night. Good night. Thank you so much. Jimmy. Bye-bye.